Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John saying This is Sirius XM Progress. Good evening and welcome to Channel 127. It is so good to have you with us for the next three hours here on the unstoppable machine that is Tell Me Everything. So glad you're with us. Chris Hauselt's our executive producer. The great Thea Harper produces our show out of Brooklyn. I'm here in Manhattan tonight. Greg Lukianoff from The Atlantic on Campus Free Speech. Julie Franchella and Simon Moyan-Smith are back with another edition of our uh, Indigenous Voices segment. We have to still come up with a cool name for their hour. We haven't found it yet. We are welcoming your suggestions. They're going to talk a bit about that kid at the football game who was half in red face, half in black face, and how a lot of people were offended or not offended for all the wrong reasons. And Thea will be here in hour number three with another installment of the Minority Report. And all night long, we want to know how you're doing, what you're thinking about, what's getting you up in the morning, and what's keeping you up at night. It's a very busy day. New York Appeals Court reinstated several gag orders on Donald Trump in his civil fraud trial. Turns out you can't go uh, talking shit about the judge's wife. Who knew? The House of Representatives devoted much of Thursday to debating a motion to expel our boo, George Santos, from Congress. Guys, I, I, I really think that by the time we talk to you tomorrow, George Santos will already be negotiating his show on OAN News. I, I don't I, I think there's actually a very good chance he'll be expelled while Dino Badal is on the air tomorrow. We want to know what you think about it. Please let us know your thoughts. I'm I'm still thinking maybe not, but if 90 Republicans are on board and Jamie Raskin's on board, homeboy is going to be putting his resume on LinkedIn by tomorrow night. Um, Hamas released another eight hostages in a prisoner swap with Israel today. The truce has been extended one more day. While talks continue, we'll be talking very shortly about the campus protests for and against Israel and Palestine. And who's getting canceled? And what is being canceled on campus look like now, as opposed to, say, 20 years ago? 
The COP28 summit kicked off in the United Arab Emirates with a quickly adopted resolution on establishing a climate change disaster relief fund to help third world countries mitigate the damage of a changing world. But as we'll discuss on tomorrow night's show, the COP28 summit has also become pretty much a speed dating service for scumbags from the fossil fuel industry to make money with each other. The CDC says only 15 percent of Americans have received the latest covid vaccine. With participation continuing a multi-year slide, four out of ten people told the CDC they were too busy to bother with the booster. I hope y'all don't need it. Before we even get to the big stuff, I'll tell you, George Santos might be out of a job tomorrow night, but uh, he has at least one person in his corner. The problem is the one person fighting for him is a person who really doesn't want to see Congress people investigated too ferociously for laws they might have broken, also known (laughs) <laughs> as Matt Gates. Whatever Mr. Santos did with Botox or OnlyFans is far less concerning to me than the indictment against Senator Menendez, who's holding gold bars inscribed with Arabic on them from Egypt while he is still getting classified briefings today. But he's not getting thrown out of the Senate. He's getting classified briefings under indictment for bribery. But what, what, because Santos was was buying Botox and OnlyFans, we got to throw him out? Someone tell Rapey McFuckface that uh, the sane community has been calling for both Santos and Menendez to be gone, gone, gone. But you know what, George? You got some good allies there. I know a campaign year must be starting, friends, because my God almighty, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are asking me for a lot of money. Is your phone pinging all day long? I, I, I mean, wow. I, I'll tell you, Fox News keeps telling me Joe Biden's raking in all these millions under the table. Someone tell Joe. Guy seems to need cash. <laughs> Let's get to it. I want to begin tonight with the story of an angel and a devil. Except in this story, the angel was an alcoholic Irish punk poet with the most rotten teeth in the United Kingdom. And the devil was a charming, well-dressed diplomat with a Nobel Peace Prize. Shane McGowan has died at the age of 65, the lead singer and songwriter of the incredible Celtic punk band, The Pogues, one of the best band leaders ever. He was sick for a very, very long time. I once described Shane McGowan uh, to a kid as, um, he's sort of like a less healthy Keith Richards. Shane was born on Christmas Day, and he came to lead the group, the London and Irish group, the Pogues, in the 1980s. And the Pogues meant, you know what, the Pogues, you know what, I, I could explain this, or why don't I have a better songwriter explain it? Why don't I have the best songwriter on the planet tell you about Shane McGowan? From his wonderful XM satellite radio show, Theme Time Radio Hour, here is Bob Dylan giving you a little backstory on the man we lost today. While we're in London, let's give a listen to a famous Irishman. He's performed some of the most interesting Irish music of the past few years, and his writing reflects an ethnic pride. Talking about Shane McGowan, and here he is with his band, The Pogues. The band was originally called Pogue Mahone, which is Gaelic for Kiss My Ass. The BBC figured that out and banned this single. They shortened their name to The Pogues, and that's how we know them today. Here they are with their song about the underside of London town. <laughs> My God, I could listen to that man's voice all day. Have you ever listened to the Theme Time Radio Hour show from the XM, uh, from what this company once was? My God, it's my favorite piece of radio in history. Just Bob Dylan's your DJ. Now, Shane McGowan began drinking 
when he was five years old. His family used to give him Guinness to help him sleep. And his dad always took him to the pub when he drank with his friends. He was a tremendous alcoholic for much of his life. Tremendous, terrible binge drinking. He often performed on stage very drunk. He gave interviews almost incoherently drunk. He, on TV, you can go Google him and see him giving just slurred answers to questions. It was sort of his trademark. Um, like Keith Richards and Iggy Pop, he, he proved to be one of the great rock and roll survivors. But again, this man abused his body with alcohol and drugs many years. To me, the shock was not that he died, but that he had lived as long as he lived. Nick Cave said, I regard Shane as easily the best lyric writer of our generation. And um, Bruce Springsteen, well, you know what? Why don't we have Bruce Springsteen from his own Sirius XM show tell you what he thinks of the man we lost today? That was the premier Texas songwriter and rocker, Joe Ely, a good friend of mine. I had one memorable evening, a dinner with Joe and Shane McGowan of the Pogues in Dublin that was unforgettable. Now, Shane's voice is nearly undecipherable in a loud restaurant, but... I was such an admirer, and I love him, and I was happy just to sit across from him. And all I know is with the exception of Bob Dylan and Chuck Berry, I'm not so sure about the rest of us, but I know they'll be singing Shane McGowan songs 100 years from now. Shane McGowan used to write lyrics for melodies that sounded like they were ancient Irish folk songs, and that was the brilliance of the Pogues. They sounded like a rock band, but the melodies were like traditional Irish folk, and the lead singer was like a snarling punk monster. It's actually the most beautiful combination. Almost all of the greatest Pogue songs sound incredibly traditional and incredibly modern at the same time. And that's why they're going to endure the wounded beauty of a pair of brown eyes, the blunt resignation of the old main drag, the hopes and fears of thousands are sailing, which I think is maybe the greatest song about emigrating from Ireland since Danny Boy, the raucous, inappropriate joy of fairy tale from New York, which they're trying to ban more and more every year. I think it's going to be more popular than ever now. It was the marriage of Irish folk and UK punk in If I Should Fall From Grace With God that may be his signature tune. Furious political songs about the troubles, extremely funny songs, including The Body of an American, which is the song, if you watch the show The Wire, whenever the cops would go out to that bar, that's the Irish punk song, the cops, white and black, in The Wire always sing together. And his songs came out of his experience in both rural Ireland and inner city Dublin. I, I first saw him with the Pogues when I was a kid. Third concert I ever saw. U2 on the Joshua Tree tour. But the opening act was this band I'd never heard of. I was not a very hip kid. And the Pogues came on stage, and I had never seen anything like it. They looked like bank robbers. They were all wearing black suits and ties. They were all drunk. They were smashing beer bottles on stage, cursing the audience, being belligerent. And when they began playing, it was like nothing I had ever heard. The marriage of punk and the Bible. And and uh, and many of the albums, I mean, you've got to hear it. Elvis Costello produced them. Joe Strummer produced them. Rum Sodomy and the Lash is one of the best records you're going to hear. I, I was astonished, and I walked away a huge fan. And as you could tell, people from Bob Dylan to Bruce Springsteen all became huge fans of Shane. When you listen to some of his last albums, you can tell that the drugs and the alcohol were taking their toll. Allegedly, by 1989-90, Joe Strummer, producing them, had to edit his vocals together syllable by syllable because he was almost impossible to understand. 
1991 in Yokohama, Japan, uh, the Pokes fired Shane McGowan for unprofessional behavior. And he he pulled himself together and recorded an amazing solo record with his new band, The Popes, called The Snake in 1994, which is just a fantastically fun album, deeply vulgar, deeply spiritual, uh, a great Pogue song he recorded as a duet with Sinead O'Connor called Haunted, which has a very, very different tone now. I saw him with his band, The Popes, at the Fla Festival uh, for Irish music in New York City couple years later he was so drunk i couldn't believe it and it was in a tent and there were thousands of people seemingly everyone turned irish jumping and screaming in unison and he seemed like the greatest band leader and the greatest showman of all time while desperately hanging on to his mic stand so he wouldn't keel over i saw him at the house of blues in la a few years after that and honestly he was so drunk on stage i didn't believe he'd make it standing through the show he he walked on stage in the dark and said to the microphone hello what's your sign and then just sang screamed and slurred like an angel for two hours he had very bad teeth he was famous for this he lost the last of his natural teeth sometime around 2008 in 2015 he got a brand new set of teeth in a nine-hour procedure with, with eight titanium implants in his jaws. They actually made an hour-long TV documentary about it called Shane McGowan, A Wreck Reborn. By this time, he was coasting on his legacy, and he was very comfortable with where he was at. In 2001, Sinead O'Connor had reported him to the police in London for heroin possession. She said she was trying to keep him from using heroin. He later expressed gratitude towards her. He was very angry at first, but he gave her credit for helping him kick his heroin habit. Last time I saw them was in the when the Pogues reunited in the late zeros in L.A. at the Wiltern Theater. Incredible. Last mosh pit I was ever a part of. And just raucous and beautiful. You want to see a great movie? Check out Julian Temple's documentary from 2020, Crock of Gold, A Few Rounds with Shane McGowan. It's a lot of Johnny Depp in the movie. He, he produced it, but he plays guitar for Shane uh, on his album and at a big concert. And it's really wonderful. And if you're a fan already, I really recommend the 2001 autobiographical book he wrote with his wife uh, Victoria called A Drink with Shane McGowan just terrific in 2016 his wife revealed to the press that he was sober for the first time in years and it's been a while since he played a live gig he's been in a wheelchair many years um, the president of Ireland today led the tributes and described him as one of music's greatest lyricists again this was a toothless alcoholic punk and today, the president of Ireland said the genius of Shane's contribution includes the fact that his songs capture within them, as Shane would put it, the measure of our dreams, of so many worlds, and particularly those of love, of the emigrant experience, and of facing the challenges of that experience with authenticity and courage, and of living and seeing the sides of life that so many turn away from. His words have connected the Irish people all over the globe to their culture and history, encompassing so many human emotions in the most poetic of ways. The bio headline for the guardian read shane mcgowan the poet musician of dereliction who became a mythic figure now contrast that with the other person that's died in the last 24 hours henry kissinger i i, I make it a rule to generally not celebrate a person's death and i don't celebrate his death i'm here to condemn his life because i respect people who are grieving his passing and i know he had a family who loved him and i wish them peace and love but we dishonor humanity if we play nice at a time like this and pussyfoot around the truth. He was one of the most influential Americans of the last hundred years. He died yesterday at age 100. 
And yes, he helped broker Nixon's historic trip to China. He helped negotiate the end of the Vietnam War. He helped detente with the Soviet Union. And he should have spent the rest of his life in a prison cell. His carpet bombing in Cambodia killed hundreds of thousands of people. This guy was pivotal in Pinochet's murderous coup because they would rather have a torturing dictator than have a socialist like Allende. He's responsible for the genocides in East Timor and Bangladesh. Millions of Argentinians and Bangladeshis and Cambodians and Chileans and East Timorese are not here to say mean things about the life of Henry Kissinger. And again, he had his accomplishments, but boy, the fawning adoration for this Machiavellian monster. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 43, and he served in Germany in World War II. Got a Bronze Star, helped hunt down members of the Gestapo. But after he came back to the U.S. and graduated from Harvard, he got very into foreign policy, and pretty quickly he began arguing that Eisenhower needed to accept that limited nuclear war in Europe might be necessary to protect the U.S. and its allies. Now, that's batshit crazy and destructive, but it helped him rise in the Republican establishment. And he went on to offer so much advice to both Democrats and Republicans. He counseled Kennedy. He advised Nelson Rockefeller in three different bids for the presidency. And again, he deserves the praise. But as veteran war crimes prosecutor Reed Brody told The Intercept, there are few people who have had a hand in as much death and destruction, as much human suffering in so many places around the world as Henry Kissinger. He directed illegal arms sales to Pakistan in their brutal crackdown on the Bengali population in 71. He supported the military coup, like I said, 50 years ago in Chile, where after they had elected the socialist Salvador Allende, Kissinger and Nixon almost immediately began plotting to overthrow the socialist. And he didn't care about the Pinochet regime's abuses. Didn't bother him. Killed an estimated 3,000 people. Tortured over 40,000. And then Kissinger became Secretary of State just a month after Pinochet's coup. And didn't do a thing about it. Said we should not position ourselves as a defender of the military regime's human rights abuses. <laughs> he gave the go-ahead to Indonesia's invasion of East Timor in 1975. And of course, it, nothing compares to Cambodia. He was the one in 69 trying to bring an end to the Vietnam War, who authorized the secret carpet bombing campaign of Cambodia. Four years of bombs, all personally approved by Kissinger. Almost 4,000 bombing raids that killed between 150,000 and half a million Cambodians and unleashed the civil war that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge, who then brought a genocide that killed as many as 2 million. Just go watch the killing fields and you'll understand how evil Kissinger was. And he never showed any remorse because he had none. He wasn't like Robert McNamara. He was never going to come out and say he felt bad about it. Instead, he kept on lying. In 2014, he said U.S. drone warfare resulted in more deaths than the Cambodian bombing campaign. In May of 1973, he said if they put Jews into gas chambers in the Soviet Union, it is not an American concern. Maybe a humanitarian one. Not a good guy. And Joe Biden put out a statement praising his fierce intellect, but noting we often disagreed and often strongly. And God bless Jimmy Carter, who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times begging Barack Obama to recognize Palestinian statehood before he left office. Jimmy Carter knew. He was the anti-Henry Kissinger. And I'm so happy tonight that Jimmy Carter has outlived, has outlived Henry Kissinger. He told the New York Times last year that Joe Biden was the only president since Nixon who had not invited him to the White House. Well done, Joe. The kindest thing I can say about Henry Kissinger is that he's going to have a much better 2024 than Donald Trump. 
So watch The Killing Fields to understand how awful Henry Kissinger was and listen to The Pogues to understand how wonderful Shane McGowan was. The drunken alcoholic Irish poet with no teeth just made heaven much sweeter. Kissinger, he made the other place a bit more crowded. We want to know what you think. We're at 866-997-GRIT, and we'll be right back after this. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. And welcome back. Since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, the issue of free speech on college campuses has received a new wave of scrutiny. Palestinian student groups have faced threats of censorship for their statements. Donors have warned about pulling funding and employers have blacklisted students who blamed Israel for Hamas's attack. So says our next guest in a great new piece you have to read in The Atlantic. But let me continue. He also says some have described the recent sanctioning of pro-Palestinian advocacy as a new McCarthyism. But even McCarthyism didn't seem to cause as much damage on campuses as we've seen in the past decade. According to a larger study at the time, about 100 professors were fired over a 10-year period during the Red Scare for their political beliefs or communist ties. We found in the past nine years, the number of professors fired for their beliefs was closer to 200. It takes a lot to shock me at this point, but our next guest, Greg Lukianoff, has done just that. He is president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, also known as FIRE, and he is one of our country's most passionate defenders of free expression. You may have read his stuff in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post. He was also executive producer of the docuseries Can We Take a Joke um, and Mighty Ira, and more recently, he co-authored the best-selling Coddling of the American Mind. This week in The Atlantic, he's got a piece about how the Israel-Hamas war has continued to spark tension across campuses with ongoing protests and walkouts, and it's not quite as new as you might think. What a pleasure to welcome Greg Lukianoff to SiriusXM. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm sorry to set up so much, but your piece is brilliant. And oh, uh, you, you. you say, as far as free speech is concerned, 2023 has been a relatively normal year for colleges and universities just don't confuse normal with good 
I love that. Admittedly, sir, we don't hear most of the good free speech stories from college campuses. They happen all the time, but that's just sure. how life is. We hear the horrible things, but how, how, how bad is it? So I've been, you know, I, I was the weird law student who went to law school specifically to do First Amendment law. Like I wanted to defend freedom of speech. That's why I why I got a law degree in the first place. I took every class at Stanford offered on freedom of speech. Um, I interned at the ACLU of Northern California. And then when I ran out of classes, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. So this is my you know calling in life. And I've been doing this for 22 years. And I will say, even back in 2001, I was a little surprised on on how tame, how, how relatively tame speech could get you in trouble on, on campuses, even back in 2001. But the scale um, and just the sheer number of cases I've seen, I've seen nothing like in my entire career than I've seen in, say, like the last six years. Um, I, I just came out with a book called Canceling of the American Mind. Yes. And we noticed this uptick. Uh, just start to begin around 2014, um, uh, but really it, it accelerated around 2017. And the number of professors who have been targeted, I, it, it's just on a scale that I feel like I'm spending a lot of my time being like, no, no, seriously, take this seriously. And it doesn't matter where you are on the political fence. Someone you agree with has gotten uh, in serious trouble in the past couple of years. So if it, what it takes is the repression of pro-Palestinian voices on campus to wake people up a little bit, this, this has not exactly been paradise for a, a long time time here, folks. Um, you know, it's not the best circumstance to take it, but I'll take it. I mean, it's fascinating seeing what the numbers have been. And you're right. I mean, we've just witnessed the arrest of a Cornell student for his threats against Jewish students. We saw three Palestinians. We're not protected, to be clear. <laughs> exactly right. So so I, I guess the obvious question is, how how bad has it been? for pro-Palestine mm -hmm. and pro-Israeli protests. I'm not saying pro-Hamas or pro-Netanyahu, but how has it been? And is there a concentration of protest towards one side or the other? Yeah, it's it, it really interesting when you, when you dig into the numbers, particularly looking at the cases we've seen. And anytime we're in like Israeli-Palestine issues, the entire organization is like, oh, this will be fun. Because they're, they're always, <laughs> no, nobody wants to compromise. It's always like yeah. really... In, in, intense. <laughs> oh, it's um, fun in talk radio too. Let me tell you. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And um, and uh, and they and they do tend to think that the it's kind of the only issue that will get you in trouble on campus. And in terms of you know the cases we've seen, issues relating to race and gender, you know, still wildly out uh, cr crowd out um, people getting in trouble for pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel speech. It's still I, th I think it's like ninth on our list of topics that will get you in trouble. It's probably going to be bigger this year, to be clear. No, 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 no kind of yeah. no doubt about that. But still, it probably won't crowd out the the other more traditionally radioactive ones. When it comes to very, we found some really interesting stuff when we looked into the, say, like 79 cases we've had fairly recently involving Israel-Palestine, is that um, you are more likely to get in trouble for a pro-Palestinian speech. However, when we looked at shoutdowns of speakers, um, when speakers come to campus and people block their the, their attending or don't let them speak by shouting them down, actually all of those were directed at pro-Israel speakers, which was which was kind of a surprise to me. Wow. Um, but definitely, when it comes to the scale, pro-Palestinian, uh, you know, um, speech is more likely to get you in trouble. Um, but, you know, looking at the situation on campus, I will say that, like, it, even though it, it's not a worse year so far for free speech, um, I would say that the number of cases we saw two or three years ago are, are still substantially higher than we're probably going to see by the end of this year. 
Um, but it has been kind of scary to see cases that like the Cornell case where it's not, you know, it's actually death threats. And it's like, OK, that's not protected, nor should it be to see some cases where it's actually assault, you know, when people are getting grabbed and this kind of stuff. And I don't blame either Jewish students or um, Islamic students or pro-Palestinian students from feeling freaked out and scared at the moment because it, it, it's it's a scary time. Are there delineations made between, say, pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas, or is it generally just pro-Palestine that groups together both subsets? Um, it's it, kind of hard to draw that from a research standpoint, but yeah. certainly, you know, when people say things that sound sympathetic to Hamas, it's more like to be controversial. And so the the students who, you know, wrote the Harvard letter, you know, uh, immediately, like while the attacks were still going on, just immediately blaming Israel, it's sounded to a lot of people like that sounds weirdly insensitive to the the, the horrible things that are actually going on and, and i mean like on october 7th right um they wrote it like right away and i and i i get why people were mad is it protected speech absolutely no question about it um mm. the question about whether or not uh you know is it is it cancel culture you know comes up a lot because our definition of cancel culture is essentially um, we talk about it's about the uptick of campaigns to get people fired uh, or punished in some way since 2014 and accelerating in, uh, in 2017 for speech that would be protected under the First Amendment. And by right. that, honestly, we mean an analogy to public employee law. So uh, in order to bring in a great deal of nuance to the kind of things that could get you fired as a public employee. And, of and wouldn't. But when it comes to one really clear case of cancel culture re relating to this in the private sphere, not 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 at public universities, because we call out cancel culture even even in private sphere, was the um, professor who was working for a journal, not 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 a not not a university you know institution, but a a, a journal who lost his job after retweeting a tweet that was pro. Palestinian. It was, um, mm -hmm. and it was, it was actually, it was honestly, it was a, it was an article by the Onion. It was like jokingly pro-Palestinian, like satirically, like, like it was pro-Palestinian, but still, like it was, um, uh, it was uh, satire. Uh, and he lost his job for that. And that's one where it's actually pretty easy to say, even though they claim that, like, he did things in the past that they didn't really like. If the straw that broke the camel's back was retweeting an Onion article, that's cancel culture. Um, you know, if you if you have any, you know, fair and nonpartisan definition, which we we strive to do in our book. And you do delineate in the actual uh, piece you wrote for the Atlantic between cancel culture and consequence culture. You're not talking about the normal reactions in society or the free market for no. someone losing their job for misdeeds they've done. You're talking about folks conscientiously trying to get a person fired from their job. Yeah, for uh, for opinions and for speech that would otherwise be protected. And the book Canceling in the American Mind, we have, you know, it's, I, this is my third attempt to write a 60,000 word book, and it's my third 100,000 word book. So, I, so I, I apologize for that. But um, so we but that's also another way of saying we have a lot of examples of this and we take on right and left. Uh, in, yeah, you, you have in, to in the book. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, you otherwise. The uh, and it's kind of funny, like watching um, various people freak out because we mention anything on the quote unquote other side. It's like, dude, you haven't been following what we've been doing for decades, if, if, if that's your complaint. Well, yeah, I mean, I think defending the First Amendment is uh, liberal and conservative at the same time, regardless of what someone's political affiliation that year might be. But I want to I want to ask you about a, a couple of points you just made that I found fascinating. You you mentioned that fire got one thousand three hundred twelve submissions about mm -hmm. possible free speech violations this year. 
Yeah. But in 2020, it was more than that. It was over 1,500. And you write, for yeah. 2023's numbers to top those, the next five weeks would have to be unprecedented. Is mm-hmm. it at all a surprise that with all the inflamed tensions after this destructive conflict in the Middle East, it's still not as many submissions as it was the year the pandemic began? Well, 2020 was a crazy year. And every, I think yeah. everybody, to some degree, kind of lost their minds in 2020. And partially, <laughs> lockdowns were a lot to do with that. Um, but some of it was in response to like the racial justice protests after um, the murder of George Floyd. And the disappointing thing is I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm an old ACLU guy. Like I, so when George Floyd was murdered, I saw, um, you know, an opportunity for meaningful police reform was immediately where my brain went, you know, about like, right. what are the following six reforms we could pass that could make this less likely from ever happening again. But unfortunately, to some degree on campus, um, among some students and some professors and some administrators, this was look up old, old, in some cases, mildly offensive things a professor might have written a couple of years ago or tweeted and see if they can get them in trouble for that. And it was really it was a bizarre month um, in 2020 when we got these. Um, this big influx of case submissions. And, and we talk about how tame a lot of the speech actually, you know, was in canceling of the American mind. So and that's the thing. It's kind of like the one of the reasons why I wrote the article was because I read an article basically saying that seemed to be saying, hey, people are getting in trouble for their opinions now on campus. Um, and <laughs> the people saying, oh, this hasn't happened since 9-11 or, or the McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. Uh, no, no, that's not quite accurate. Um, it's actually been really bad the past several years. Uh, and my hope from writing the Atlantic article is basically like, listen, this isn't new. It is very bad. And, and we're here to and we're here to defend uh, the, the, these students and professors um, as they need. It, and we currently are. Um, but also, you know, our attitudes about free speech uh, for the past several years have been troubling. Like there, there definitely has been a one of the things we finished the book with is some very simple principles to remember. I, I wish before anybody took action against, you know, potential employees or friends or, you know, um, uh, their professors that they just repeated to themselves this old idiom. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Mm hmm. <laughs> You'd think. Uh, I would hope. <laughs> now, I mean, everyone is entitled. And as you point out, protecting free speech requires having to defend the rights of both sides in any conflict. And so, even so, and even weirdos who don't really uh, code to any particular side, like the, like the sure. in some cases, the, the, like the, the Westboro Baptist Church, there's there's like no 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 there's no side of the political spectrum that loves those guys. Um, but in mm-hmm. some ways, that fact almost makes protecting them even more clear nope, because you're, right. you're obviously saying something. Nobody agrees with these uh, these insane people, but you know, if they want to go uh, make themselves look like idiots by protesting Comic Con, by all means, let them. But I mean, they they are First Amendment grifters founded by this crooked lawyer. Fred Phelps, who literally try to protest as obnoxiously as possible so someone will try to shut them down and deprive them of their free speech rights, they're more or less a First Amendment lawsuit machine. And even though that is their scurrilous, sleazy way of doing business, you have to stand up for them. They have a right to behave thusly. Well, and, and, and that's something that I say, like, if you're battling someone who wants to become a martyr, don't oblige them. And as far as like the, the most the most brilliant um, and I brought up Comic-Con partially because the it, it's the most brilliant counter protest I've seen in my entire life. When Fred Phelps decided they didn't try to shut him down, they didn't they, they didn't try to you know get him arrested. They right. just did a counter protest that was hysterical, you know, like people holding up 
um, you know, standing next to Fred Phelps with his hateful signs, you know, in a Bender costume that's uh, with a sign that says "Kill all humans," <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone uh, holding up a sign just like, "Hey, Fred, how does a magnet work?" Like, like, like it was. <laughs> it, it, look it up on, on on Google. It's like that's how you do it. You, you you don't make them into free speech martyrs. You make them look like, you know, the that's fools it. and bigots they are in some cases. That's what works. I am very proud as a comedian to have been picketed in Kansas City by the Westboro Baptist Church, and it's one of my my favorite resume credits. That's great. So, <laughs> thank you. So so here's the million dollar question. Here's what I wanted yeah. to ask you about. And you made reference to this early on in our, our conversation. But mm-hmm. what you mentioned 2014 and, and yeah. you say that since 2000 fires tracked incidents and you found that until 2014 academics had little reason to self censor, even when discussing the day's most controversial topics. I, I know there's not a lot of hard data on this, but what do you believe began to change in 2014 that made it so much more perilous. We, we, we actually at FIRE, we put together really great data up until about maybe 1998. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in our records going going back to then. And that took obviously a, a ton of work. We really we don't cover that as much in canceling of the American mind because coddling of the American mind, the entire thing is trying to figure out what was so different about the students hitting campus around 2014. And we have, you know, another hundred thousand words on on that. But as far as the thing that really changed um, the dynamics, it's this was the it was the first generation of young people who grew up with social media in their pockets and knew how to use it to fight, essentially hitting campus in large numbers around 2013, 2014. Now, I should point out, my co-author in Canceling of the American Mind is 23. She's a she's a genius Gen Z young woman who talks about growing up with these kind of ways of what we call winning arguments without winning arguments, using social right. media to just kind of like, you know, um, uh, eliminate your, your, your opponent, not actually engage with them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and still to this day, the thing the, the the best thing that both Height and I can find to explain what was so different about the kids hitting um, campus in 2014, there, there were multiple things different. But the most important one, the thing that accelerated this whole nasty process, it's social media, because prior to that, like if you hated a journalist, for example, you know, you'd send a, a letter, an angry letter to an editor and who cares? Like it ends up in a drawer. Yeah. Um, social media suddenly created an opportunity, particularly for those who are skilled at it, of making the appearance of a angry mob of a thousand people demanding you That's fire it. such and such columnist, even if it actually turns out that it's two dozen people. That's exactly the conversation we just had with author Cliff Nesteroff talking about comedy and protests against uh, comedy. He used to be there would be letters to the editor and an editor yes. would get 200 letters and pick one to publish and correct it for grammar and spelling. And you'd get a sense <laughs> of that person's opinion. Now there are no editors. There's 10,000 people in the comment section who never learned how to spell your. And it seems like a disproportionate slice of the public sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. We do have a chapter in um, in Canceling of the American Mind about comedy, but it is one of the areas where we left feeling more reassured that it was going to be OK, um, because I, comedy, you know, has some built in. But actually, you're 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 the expert. How, how do you feel about the current state of comedy with regards to, you know, cancel culture? You know, I, I think it's a lot like college campuses, but I hear a lot of, you know, people I, I like a lot, like Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock talking about how college campuses are too PC and you can't say anything there. And I'm just like. I, I don't know when the last time Jerry and Chris were playing college campuses, respectfully. Um, you know, I think that umbrage is the one addiction people on the right and the left share in this country. We are addicted to being offended by shit. And we it's it's a natural national pastime that, that unites the right and the left. So it makes us feel I, superior. It, 
yeah, there's always going to be someone who wants to be offended. It's your job as the artist to make it funny enough that you can get away with anything. That's that, I think that's exactly right. But yeah, that was that was a chapter when we did it. We're kind of like, OK, this, this is we're feeling more optimistic about this. Um, but the you know, some of the other ones uh, left us a little worried, particularly, you know, when we put together all the um, all the difference, what we call sort of conformity inducing pressures that young people experience, you know, from high school on up. We, we right. And I always make the point and I'm very like old, old school Gen X on this kind of stuff. I'm like, they should be nonconformity inducing pressures. <laughs> well, I mean, in the, and by the way, the piece in the Atlantic is called The Latest Victims of the Free Speech Crisis. Um, and in that piece, I, I have to ask you one last question. There's sure. so much here that blew my mind. But is it true that, we, you know, we talk about how our country's going crazy right now and how we went crazy after 9-11. But yeah. is it true that in the five years after 9-11, there was only about a dozen or so professors who were facing calls to be fired? And of those dozen or so, only three college professors lost their jobs for free speech reasons after that terrorist attack it's when actually look back uh, on the country losing their minds it's a little bit worse than that that it's uh, we say over a dozen i think it's safe to say about 16 professors were were, were targeted mm -hmm. um those were my first cases by the way my first time on tv was defending people who said you know offensive stuff who cracked jokes about 9-11 for example um a, a really good way to get started as a free speech lawyer right into the fire um, uh, and even the three professors who were fired, all three were justified by one was justified by actual ties to uh, uh, international terrorism. The other one was justified by um, a gross academic misconduct. He was actually exonerated on the free speech claim. And the other one for not actually teaching her class. So even all those three that were fired. <laughs> Um, right. You know, the, the, uh, but still, this was rightfully considered to be a big threat to academic freedom at the time. Those seventeen professors being targeted, and and the fear that more would be, and I and I, you know, thought it was a, a bad period. And you know, we're talking about three fired, and now we're talking about two hundred, and I'm still having to convince people that this is even happening. So I am, I really do appreciate that you read the article because it's laying out the evidence. It's like, guys, come on, like we we got some stuff to fix here. I mean, over oh, about three professors fired in the madness that this country was engulfed in after 9-11. But from 2014 to July of this year, <laughs> over a thousand campaigns to punish scholars for their views and almost 200 firings. Yeah, it's uh, about more than 40 of them tenured, which early in my career, I would have thought even one tenured professor getting trouble, uh, get, getting fired specifically for things protected by academic freedom was essentially impossible. Just amazing. Is it? Is it just a form of petulance? Am I being condescending by saying it just seems like it's a lot of people who are being led by their umbrage? Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly like what like what's going on. I sometimes like the um, uh, I do think that administrators have been a major problem on campus for a long time. And the hyper the hyper bureaucratization of universities is one of the reasons why it costs so damn much. But it's also one of the reasons why things are policed so much. And when that meant a, a you know, a, a generation more prone to umbrage and administrators who are already pretty, you know, um, not great on clamping down on speech they didn't like, I think it created a really bad environment. Add to that organizations like Turning Point USA and some of the Fox yeah. News stuff, and you start getting it from both on campus and off campus, and hooray. What is really strange about it to this day, though, is that the law 
on this has mostly never been stronger. So like back in McCarthyism, the law wasn't established yet. And and professor and the university presidents thought they could fire people for being, you know, having radical political beliefs. That's mm-hmm. not a question anymore. The law has been very clearly established since, since 57 to 73 um, that you should not be firing professors for their points of view or um, or or expelling students for theirs. And it's been happening at, at a rate that we haven't seen. And I don't entirely understand how it's been that the the protections of tenure have collapsed so much just in the last five or right. ten years. That that was a genuine surprise. Greg Lyonov is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. His new book, along with Ricky Schlott, is The Canceling of the American Mind. I'd love to have you back and talk about the book and go even deeper on it sometime. But thank you for oh, the sure. excellent no, no, piece no, no. in the this was a really fun conversation, and I'd love to uh, I'd love to see your stand up sometime. <laughs> right on, I'll invite you down sometime. Thank you so much. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at eight six six nine nine seven forty seven forty eight. This is progress. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. I'm John Fiegel saying this is Sirius XM. We are joined by Julie Franchella and Simon Moya-Smith. I want to quote one of their fans. This is from Twitter. This is from member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the E Street Band, our friend, little Stephen Van Zant, who wrote this week, everybody needs to tune into Fugelsang 10 p.m. Thursdays on 127 to hear Julie and Simon educate the public the way our school system should about our first Americans. We do our best at teachrock.com. Keep up the righteous good work. You guys, you're getting little Stephen Van Zant hyping up this segment. My God. Silvio That's, Dante, man, soprano. Silvio from the Sopranos. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've yeah. literally got the consigliere of the Sopranos praising the segment. Well done. Oh, hell yeah, man. When I saw that, I got all giddy. I was seriously watching the Sopranos that morning, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Julie texted me. I'm like, what the hell? Seriously? Him? and Yeah. Crazy great. Well, thank you guys for making our show better. My God. I'm so glad you're with us. Let's go to our phones. Let's go to David in Santa Fe. David, thank you so much. You're on with Simon and Julie. Welcome. Hey, John. Welcome. Can you hear us? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Sure can. You're on with Simon and Julie. That's great. Mitake on Pep to watch that Kile. 
Uh, oh, I'm speaking to my re- I'm speaking to my relatives. So I had a couple ideas for the uh, the segment. Uh, simply First Nations offering. That mm-hmm. meaning when when we speak to people, or if we at, we want to ask people, say an elder or anybody, ask them something, we make an offering, and nice. it's usually a tobacco offering. So I thought First Nations offering would be a good one. And that's out of respect for people. We give them something like that. Yeah. And uh, another one is uh, would be sending a voice. That's Hoye Wayelo in Lakota. Sending a voice, the usual connotation is you're sending your voice out to the Creator, to the universe, and to all your relatives. Uh, but I like that one. We're still here. That's a pretty good one. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. We we've been tossing names around for a couple of weeks now. But I'm 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 I once waited two months to name a pet because I think you got to do it right. You got it. You got to you you got to love this baby and make sure yeah. it has the right name. Sure you do. Thanks, well, thank yeah. David. And, uh, those are great. Yeah, sending a voice and also a First Nations offering. Just simple because that covers all of the First Nations. Nice. Uh, the sending a voice comes from the Lakota. And uh, I wanted to touch on the feather thing and the headdress thing quickly. Uh, The headdress, that is for chiefs, for elders, like uh, Simon and Julie said, who have earned that honor. And the thing is, they don't set out to earn that honor. They don't go, go, well, I'm going to go earn myself a headdress. It doesn't happen that way. Right, right. The reason it happens is because these people are in service to their relatives, to their nation, and to the all nations, uh, you know, hopefully to all nations, not just to our own. And it's service, taking care of the poor, feeding people, doing whatever you can to help people. And mm-hmm. that's how these chiefs get these headdresses. And right on. In my experience, I, my experience is mostly Sundance, but also has... Uh, People that, you know, powwow people, Sundance people, ceremony in general where uh, these headdresses are earned. Now, I okay. wear eagle feathers. I don't have a headdress, Ooh. but I have, I have earned that through many years of, of Sundance ceremony. And uh, I started out taking care of a fire on sweat lodges for elders. Wow. So that's, and so that's how you, uh, you know, you start out in service. And you do what you can. I don't have I love a headdress. I, have, I, I do wear feathers in my hair when I'm at Sundance. Nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, it, like I said, it's, it's a humility. The main thing is humility. And through that humility of teaching people, of helping people, even in just a small way, of helping them, you know, their cars broke down and they right, helped exactly. them get it fit, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's. That's what I wanted to say about that. Wow. Ooh. David, why are you so divisive? Why so divisive? <laughs> I'm sorry, Simon. Go ahead. Well, I was speaking uh, yeah, Lakota back to him. Lila wopi la thanka. You know, that just means thank you very much. Yes. Oh. Oh. And when we, you, when we greet each other, we greet each other as brothers and sisters or as grandfather, you know, in respect. Uh, even to our to our children, uh, Wakanje, uh, the sacred children, they're the most sacred thing. So we we do things in the best way we can with respect and without offending people 
nice. in any way. And well, I've, uh, we that's welcome, better than I could do. One more thing. Yeah. yeah, we welcome all nations, people of European descent, Japanese, African, South American. We welcome all of them to our ceremonies mm-hmm. as long as they have respect. Mm-hmm. And we have yeah. many, many people from many nations that come to to uh, Pine Ridge and come to Rosebud every year. And mm-hmm. they come to our Sundance or they come to our powwows, come nice. to pipe ceremonies, and they, they give us respect. And they honor it, and they do it in the right way, and they do it with humility. In most cases, right. of course, there are David, always, thank you. You're like the anti-troll. This is the nicest call I've ever gotten on the show. <laughs> David, you're so right. You know, you're talking about respect and coming sort of with a humble heart. And that's why I don't, I don't buy this whole, you know, this family saying that they're, oh, well, we're native, so we can do this. Because if you're connected in that way, you know that we always come with respect and a humble heart. And that wearing that headdress like that, and sort of making it it trivial is not a humble heart and is not out of respect. So yeah, absolutely. So thank nope. you. Yeah, thank you for that call, David. By the way, David, uh, I I Sundance on my res, and uh, I love what you just said that we welcome a lot of people from many different parts of the world, and some of them will spend time, will come from Europe just to go to our Sundances. Mm-hmm. And on my res specifically, my elder Jeffrey Sitting Bear, who runs our Sundance in Allen, South Dakota, he said uh, the Creator doesn't discriminate, so neither do mm. I. I love it. Thank you, David, for the call. I want to try to get one more while we have you guys. Uh, Teresa in Washington, welcome. You're on with Simon and Julie. Uh, hi. Um, I watch a lot of Westerns and stuff, and I get a lot of American history from them. Well, I I, hopefully it's a correct history. Yeah, well, go ahead. Well, I, I, do, I do look up certain things. Like um, I was watching a movie about the uh, Comanches, and they had a bunch of stuff in there about how the Spanish had enslaved their people and put them to work in the silver mines. That's all and true. And brutalized them. And that's what started their scalping. And then the Spanish Mexicans were selling uh, or buying uh, Comanche scalps for 50 bucks. And then, like, the Comanches started scalping everybody that went in there. Yeah, I don't think the Comanches began the scalping, by the way. I don't think they yeah, were the first I can ones to jump do that. In, Go ahead, Simon. Yeah, if you don't mind, Julie, can I jump in on this one? Yeah, please do, please do. Yeah, so scalping didn't start with us. The narrative is that we were all scalping each other. No, yep. that's not how that worked. Scalping started with white people. So when white people came over, here came this bald, paunchy white man. And there was nothing to scalp. <laughs> there was literally nothing to scalp on these fuckers. And yet we're blamed for that. But this is true. So when they came over and they were massacring us or they they won in a battle, they would scalp us. So our response was like, okay, this is how these white people celebrate a victory. Or this is how they demonstrate a victory. So we would scalp them back. And so all of a sudden, of course, through propaganda and through yeah. uh, journalism and media back in those days, they would say Indians are scalping, you know, you know, uh, Christians, God fearing Christians. Yep. That shit started with them. They had nothing to scalp. Yeah. Well, that's what I got from the movie, except for it was the Spanish. And I'm not sure you're talking about Spanish being white people, are you? No. Yeah. Well, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Down in Spain, you know, when you look up Hernan Cortez. 
and you look up the conquistadors, you will understand he was he was like Columbus, but in Mexico. So you yeah. have Christopher Columbus who came and he was he never so Christopher Columbus never set foot on the continental United States. Never. Right. He came and he was with the he he met with the Taino people and then he started massacring and murdering and you know, just basically doing everything bad that their Christian Bible told them not to do to other people. He did that. But if you go down into Mexico and Hernan Cortez, that is some really awful, brutal shit that he did to the Aztec people in the name of God, in the name of gold. And so mm. the idea of scalping is something that is associated with indigenous people just all across. It doesn't matter right. if we're talking about Mexico or the yeah. United States or Canada. We are the ones that are like Indians scalp. No, they started it. They did and that. The, they wanted right. it. And the other thing too, European colonists and the governments were offering bounties for scalps of Native Americans. So, I mean, that's also part of, you know, that whole um, pre-col the colonization, you know, offering uh, bounties for scalps, Native American scalps. Yeah. So, yeah, which is the uh, you, which is the history of the R word, by the way. That's that's where the R word started. Teresa, you don't know the name of this movie, do you, by any chance? Uh, I've just been watching like four hundred uh, Western movies. On, <laughs> no on worries. Let, let me let me switch it around. <laughs> si Simon and Julie, are there any films that you would recommend for people who are looking to get a more historically correct picture of this time period we're talking about? Not westerns. I've very no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I I watch those and I go, holy shit! No wonder these people think this. No wonder this is this stereotype of indigenous people. And again, uh, for all of its faults, I guess the only one that would be considered a western that indigenous people hope people watch and then see it from a different lens would be Dances with Wolves. But sure. that's only because, and as we've we've said this before, Julie, uh, that in this narrative, people are like, oh, it's a white savior. No, no, it's we not. saved him. He rejected Western ideals. He rejected his Christian beliefs. And he was like, okay, this is how to live. And yeah. so that would be, the, that's the lesson to take from Dances with Wolves. But all of those John Wayne Westerns, please, please yeah. stop watching them yeah. if you think you're going to get any facts about indigenous people. Julie, mm -hmm. any films that you would recommend, in including documentaries? Uh, well, the American Buffalo by Ken Burns. Yeah. That yeah. one, it, it, it just frames it in a way that is so powerful. Um, I mean, I just we just watched that, and that yeah. would be the one that I would highly recommend. Again, you know, Native American history is American history. You know, people say, oh, well, we don't want to learn about Native American history, but that is American history. That is yeah. the history of this land, and it's not, you know, covered. So um, definitely the... Um, Ken Burns' American uh, Buffalo. It's American Buffalo, right? Is what it's called? Yeah. The American yeah. Buffalo. Highly recommend it. It's just um, such a, it's devastating. It's, it's in two terrific. parts. We had Ken so on to talk good. about it last month. Yeah. It's really, oh, I think. Amazing. Maybe the I, every time he puts a new one out, I think this is better. But after his Holocaust film, I think it actually goes very well with his film about America and the Holocaust because it is a film about the Holocaust in America. Hey, thank yeah. you so very much. Did he so talk about it in that call. show, by the way? 
What's that? The, in that doc in the Holocaust documentary, did he talk about in, you know reservations oh, yeah. first established as prison camps? Well, he talked about how Hitler used the reservation model of yeah, when he was designing when yeah when they were planning the whole the concentration camps. Absolutely, what? guys. Oh, thank good. you so good, good. much as always for this segment. Um, I just I just love it, and we need to make it even longer. What is the best way for our listeners to follow both of you and keep up with your work, Simon? Uh, well, you guys got me back on Twitter. So Simon Moya Smith <laughs> on Twitter or uh, on Instagram. Simon said, take a pic. Julie. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Julie Franchella. And also I have a website, juliefranchella.com, where you can see my artwork and other other things that I'm working on. Thank you. And once again, everyone, uh, thanks to little Stephen Van Zandt, the biggest cheering section for this segment. <laughs> my God. Guys, I love this segment. I love the two of you being here together. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week. Don't oh, go away. You. Thank you. We're at 866-997-GRIT. We'll be right back after this. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome back. Now it's time for our own wonderful producer, Thea Harper with... The Minority Report. Thea, welcome back. It's great to have you on the air. I beg this woman to come on the air all the time. Hey, John. How are you? I'm really great. And I'm, I was reading this article in Forbes you sent me earlier. And Forbes, you know, I think of Forbes, I think pro-business. But uh, I'm just going to quote this piece. In the post-pandemic world, Americans are still reckoning with the ideal worker norm or the notion that we should be always available to our jobs and that our value is tied to only what we produce. This is in a story called Women, Burnout, and Radical Sabbaticals, How Career Breaks Can Be Healing. What was it that caught your attention with this piece? Um, well, really, um, Chris brought it to my attention. Ah. Um, and then I read it and I was just like, oh, my God, like just being a woman um, and sometimes dealing with the difficulties of having to maneuver in the workplace um, and try to, um, you know, reach those goals. It's mm -hmm. difficult. It's not easy at all. 
Especially um, when you work at a, at Sirius XM with guys like me and Chris, it's it's even more horrible. So so yeah, so this <laughs> Forbes article pretty much says that more than forty percent of workers are burned out, with women being more likely to experience burnout than their male counterparts. Um, and they, I believe it. Yeah, same. Um, and there are many different reasons: uh, the the gender and racial pay gap. Um, the broken rung, which yeah. suggests that women uh, are unable to break through entry-level management roles and get promoted to higher levels. Yep. We're pretty much getting trapped in lower-level positions, um, unequal representation in leadership, um, and the fact women are more likely to go to, or more, are more likely to work in the lowest paid jobs. Um, also, lack of affordable childcare. There's, there's many reasons. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love the notion of that, you know, with burnout being this high and God knows from the pandemic, we're still burned out. People <laughs> working remotely or everyone's tired. But but this I love the notion of a, a radical sabbatical, which I guess means like just taking a, a break from work to really get serious about your own health. Yeah, pretty much uh, just a career break to focus on your personal well-being. Um, and then they even say even even um, attempting to try to get some clarity about your career choices. I, I, I guess, you know, the, my question about it is it seems like that's incredibly hard for lower income or middle income people to even think about taking a, a sabbatical. You know, I, I think so many of us could really use a radical sabbatical and God knows so many women in the workplace could. But like if you're someone with a kid, if you're someone who doesn't have the financial wherewithal to take a break – it just seems like how can you even begin to focus on your own well-being when you're you're trapped being a, a nonstop wage slave? Right. Um, that is something that is mentioned in the article that this is sometimes viewed as a privilege. And like yeah. I even think back to my mom. She was a single parent. Uh, there was never a time where she could just be like, you know what, I'm just going to take a break. Um, yeah. And even and even if you could, right? There's also this uh, this shame and stigma around it, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's shame around anything about you know taking care of your own mental health is one of the most productive, healthy things you can do for your 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 life and your business. But yeah, the stigma is still there. Right, right. And then the article also mentions that you know the average person will spend more than forty more than forty years in the workforce. Um, and most most people will experience a life event or over those four decades that will prompt them to take a career break, such as a health issue or caring for a family member or a career transition. Um, but, you know, while, you know, while these career breaks and sabbaticals are nothing new, it's just it's very um, when it's not in, in regards to those things, it's like a shock to people. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. And, and again, it's good for a company. I mean, burnout right. is bad for capitalism. Burnout is bad for your business. And it hurts worker productivity. I, I think that, you know, smart employers already know you need to give your staff breaks. You need to have vacation days. And if someone needs a mental health day, I think that the very fact that mental health day has become more a more popular phrase in the workplace shows that we're getting there gradually. But, I mean, <laughs> I, well, like for most of us, a radical sabbatical is taking an odd Friday off. Right. <laughs> right. And so um, the article talks about, you know, that there should be some policy changes in place 
you know, to create this space, you know, yeah. where people care about focus on their well-being. Um, and they were talking about, you know, it, it could be something, you know, paying people a living wage. So, you know, that person could work uh, only probably has to work one job instead of two. Um, yeah, right. like it could, it could be that as well. Um, yeah. That, I mean, this is all why eventually we're going to have to have the conversation about universal basic income when AI takes all of our jobs away anyway. But yeah, I right. mean, it's just like <laughs> everyone I know is just working all the time and tired of working all the time and feeling like they're not getting anywhere. I know that the, the great resignation trend uh, is over now. But um, as Forbes says, there was a tipping point suggesting employees were shifting from a live to work to a work to live mindset. You know, Thea, I kind of thought that once more people were working from their home and, and doing more hybrid work that maybe this would ease up, but it doesn't seem to have been the case with all these wars and terrible news. I mean, my God, you only have to see me and Chris occasionally working remotely, and I know we still cause you a lot of stress. <laughs> but yeah, you would think that with the pandemic, you know, things change, but also during the pandemic, there were people that were working all day, you know? Yeah, you're right. Because... You're right. <laughs> so... I, I think I think it's crucial to prioritize self, especially when we live in a society, especially for women, where it's so hard for us to experience that upward mobility in the workplace. It's, it's very yeah. frustrating. Uh, and I also think as um, as women, we are told to to be so many different things by society. Yep. Yep. And and I love how this article talked about the importance of getting back to self and the importance of separating your your identity from your work, because we are so much more than that. The piece in Forbes is called Women, Burnout, and Radical Sabbaticals, How Career Breaks Can Be Healing. And Thea, you and I have talked a lot about how every break we've ever had from Chris has been deeply healing for both of us. <laughs> so despite our differences in race and gender, that's something we share. We we both need deep, deep mental health breaks from, from Chris and all that he brings to the table. It's not fair. I agree. I agree. It's not fair, but we just did it for ourselves, Chris, because we, if we can get away from you and your toxic energy for a few days, then we can come back and deal with your toxic masculinity because we've had a rest. Yeah, it's too much, Chris. It's too much. It's just to help the whole company all in all, Chris. Serious <laughs> XM is behind us on I got your, I got your radical sabbatical right here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thea, you are the best in the world. Uh, what is the best way for our evil army of the night to follow you? Not in the creepy way down the street, but just in your socials. <laughs> Everyone can follow me at I am Thea Harper on the socials. Right on. Thank you so much uh, for joining Thank us for another terrific segment. Thank you. Thank you.